This episode is brought to you by Lamp Rainierson. Lamp Rainierson provides landscape architecture, planning, and civil engineering services. From community-wide master plans to land development, Lamp Rainierson incorporates sustainable design principles and equity into all of their projects. You're listening to the Booked on Planning podcast, a project of the Nebraska chapter of the American Planning Association. In each episode, we dive into how cities function by talking with authors on housing, transportation, and everything in between. Join us as we get booked on planning. Welcome back, bookworms, to another episode of Book Down Planning. In this episode, we talk with author Nolan Gray on his book, Arbitrary Lines. This book has been getting a lot of attention over the past few months through other podcast interviews, webinars, and articles. There's a link in our show notes to another interview that Nolan did for APA's podcast and an article in The Atlantic. So make sure to check that out after you listen. It's not surprising, though, that this book is getting so much attention because many states and local governments are following through with reforms that align with the book's message. And you can understand why this conversation is really coming to the forefront. The housing crisis is forcing communities to really consider every policy that could be causing skyrocketing prices. And there's little doubt that zoning is really one of the causes. Zoning is even getting talked about at the federal level, which is quite unusual. Just last year, President Biden included incentives for zoning reform in his budget negotiations. What was once something that most people lived their lives not even knowing anything about is now at the forefront of policy conversations at every level. And I have to admit that after reading the book and then talking with Nolan, I was really ready to get rid of our zoning ordinance here. We spend so much time as staff trying to tweak the language a little here, a little there, or in many cases, figure out how to make a very reasonable development request try and fit within our existing code. We could instead be spending a lot more time on land use planning and big picture development items like how our local road network should be laid out that we really leave to the development community to figure out today. But I also have realistic perspective and know that we're not anywhere near abolishing zoning and instead hope that we can do some of the smaller amendments that Nolan recommended, like getting rid of parking requirements or single family zoning. I have to admit on the redevelopment side of things, I actually love figuring out how to help developers stay within the quote unquote letter of the zoning ordinance, but push the boundaries and get exactly what we were looking for. I was pretty skeptical of Nolan's argument going into reading the book, but after Listening to him and having our conversation and getting through the book, I admit he made some excellent points, and it's very clear that zoning at least needs an overhaul at the minimum. Well, let's get into our conversation with Nolan on arbitrary lines. Well, Nolan, thank you for joining us on Booked on Planning to talk about your book, Arbitrary Lines. In the introduction to your book, you summarize all the negative side effects of zoning that we've been talking about for months now, driving up housing costs, cementing racist practices, working against environmentalism, forcing more lanes to be devoted to the car, and the list goes on. With all these downsides, why hasn't this conversation to get rid of zoning come up before, do you think? That's a really great question, and I think something that's key to tackle if we want to sustainably reform zoning. 
you know, I think what's happened is one, we've had a system that was on the books that, you know, is now approaching 100. It's taken for granted, right? I mean, you, you play a game like SimCity, which is most people's engagement with city planning, and they essentially have you do two things, map out roads and map out zoning, right? The assumption is that this is, this is the way that we plan cities. So I think it's this, a little bit of, uh, you know, an established system persisting. I think that's part of it. But also, too, I think that certain interests have realized that, hey, this this potentially serves their objectives at the cost of potentially broader community. So, you know, I think there's compelling evidence that, you know, many folks knowingly use zoning policies, for example, to block additional housing that might lower the value of their asset or folks using zoning to keep out uh, economic competitors. You know, I think that also, too, there's a certain constituency in most cities who just have a reflexive opposition to change. Who don't want to see any change happen in their community. And for them, zoning is the most powerful tool in their toolkit. And those, of course, are generally going to disproportionately be more privileged members of the community, uh, wealthier, tend to be homeowners who are going to be able to leverage these tools to block any and all new development. Whereas the people who are going to be harmed by a lot of these policies are generally going to be more marginalized. Younger people who are renters who maybe hope to become homeowners or older folks who need a downsize, or, of course, people who are kept out of the community altogether. Two people have no say in every zoning uh, discussion in every city in America. One is, uh, you know, the the future prospective resident, the person who might have lived there if the housing got built, and two, the person who might have lived there had there not been generations of restricted zoning, uh, who are maybe forced to live in another jurisdiction because they can't afford the, the jurisdiction in question. Uh, so the politics of of, of zoning are, are are sticky, and this is partly why I think at the local level these political factors are why you're going to need reform at higher levels, such as state and to a lesser extent the federal government. Yeah, I actually think that the um, resident who never got to live in the neighborhood, we did um, an interview on the color of law in January, and it was a thought that had honestly never come into my brain, and it's such a deep and compelling thought once it's there that you just kind of start thinking through. So, and speaking of, when you're thinking about the foundational legal doctrines that support land use and development in America, most of those doctrines actually have ancient roots that reach back into the beginnings of common law. But zoning is relatively new phenomenon, almost exclusively laid out in statute or ordinance, legally speaking. What created the perfect storm in the late 19th century that led to the creation of the zoning doctrine? Yeah. So as you mentioned, humans have been doing something like land use planning basically since we started settling down, right? Trying to deal with nuisance issues, regulating building materials, regulating heights with, you know, things like fire in mind. Zoning comes in in the early 20th century and is doing something broadly in that tradition, but very different from the way we'd approach land use planning. So I think first to, to set the table a little bit, two big things are happening with cities. First is they're they're growing up in a way that they never had. So the invention of elevator with safety brakes and steel frame high rises, right? Cities are able to actually get quite a bit denser than they historically had ever been. And then second, uh, cities are growing out. So the invention of the affordable automobile, of course, completely changes the calculus in terms of where people live, but also the invention of the box truck, for example, completely changes where industry can locate. So cities are in a huge state of flux, but that had been going on for a few decades, right? You know, that had been, that that process had been going on for probably at least 50 years by the time modern zoning codes start coming online in most U.S. cities. I think part of what's going on in most U.S. cities in the 1910s is that there's a massive influx of outsiders And depending on the context, for example, in the Upper South, 
uh, places like Louisville and St. Louis, you have a huge influx of African-Americans out of the South as part of the Great Migrations. In other northeastern cities, you have huge influxes of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. On the West Coast, you have huge influxes of immigrants from East Asia. And, and part of what's going on there is I think there's a reaction to these new groups coming in and a desire among the elites who make policy in this time period to institute some form of segregation. So, of course, in a rare moment of clarity on racial issues in 1917, the Supreme Court says in Buchanan v. Worley, we're not going to tolerate explicitly racial zoning. But what you get in the aftermath of that is jurisdictions adopting codes that achieve that same level of segregation, but through the lens of class. So I talk about this in in the book quite a bit. You know, of course, a lot of times this touches on housing. So the ability to determine what type of housing can be built where is the, the ability to determine who gets to live where. So if you can say, hey, in this neighborhood, you're only allowed to live here if you can purchase a single family home on a really large lot. Of course, that places a pretty significant floor to the person who can live there with from an income based perspective, which has racial implications. But then also, too, this touches even on industry or commercial or notions of what the appropriate mixture of uses in any given neighborhood are. You know, in Berkeley, you, you read the early Berkeley codes and advocacy for the early Berkeley codes. And they'll say things like, well, we need to adopt zoning to keep industrial uses out of residential neighborhoods. And you think, well, that makes a lot of sense, certainly for modernized. But then the industrial uses that they're concerned about are Chinese laundries, right? And there's, of course, a long and very uh, nasty history of that in California of attempts to exclude Chinese residences and businesses. I think that's a huge part of the story. I don't think that's the, the whole part of the story. I think it's, it's, it's certainly important as we think about what our current values are in planning and what our planning policies do. Berkeley is actually in the process of updating their zoning ordinances. And so I think it will be very fascinating to watch the city who had a foundational role in zoning, see how they actually modernize, quote unquote, a zoning ordinance that just hasn't really helped anyone in 100 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the silver lining of California's housing crisis, you know, constantly setting a new rock bottom is that there's a lot of conversation about the need to reform a lot of these rules. And some of, sometimes that happens at the local level when you have progressive local leadership, but we're also seeing a lot of activity happen at the state level. So along the lines of the housing crisis, you talk about how great powerhouse cities of economic development like New York are growing at a much lower rate than typical because people are choosing more affordable cities like Orlando, Fort Worth, and I thought it was interesting you included Omaha, just an hour away from us here in the Midwest. As our population continues to grow nationwide, do you think that there's more room for more powerhouse cities to emerge alongside the New Yorks? Or is it going to continue to hurt our economy to take away from these creative centers? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so one of the great things about America is that historically folks would move to opportunity. You know, historically, Americans were uniquely mobile. If 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 something wasn't working out locally, we would move to opportunity and prosperity. And there's so many stories of that. I mentioned the great migration of African-Americans out of the South, but the huge migrations of Appalachians into the industrial Midwest, a little bit nearer to my Kentucky roots. Historically, Americans would move to prosperous places where there were lots of great jobs and educational opportunities and make the housing work. Now, of course, Americans do the opposite. Americans flee places like Silicon Valley or metropolitan New York or metropolitan Boston to go to places in the Sun Belt where principally they're moving there because the cost of living is significantly lower. And that major cost of living factor is housing. I think you're already starting to see a little bit. So, I mean, it seems obvious to me that finance has moved to places like Charlotte or that tech is moving to places like Austin. I do still think, you know, I mean, there's compelling evidence in the book that I that I go over suggesting that there's still huge economic costs. You know, even if a lot of tech moves to Austin or a lot of finance moves to 
Charlotte or our other, our other knowledge-based industries move to places in the Sun Belt. Of course, there's still just the loss of the transition and of these legacy cities that we know are enormously productive, uh, not being able to grow. And then I would stress too, I think this is sort of just buying time. I mean, right, because the zoning on the books in a place like Charlotte or a place like Austin is in many ways just as restrictive as it is in a place like New York City or San Francisco, in many cases, even more so. And what happens when you you build that out and you've built out what the zoning currently allows and then you've built your last subdivision that's within a two-hour commute of the downtown? Well, then Texas and North Carolina are in exactly the same uh, situation as New York or California. So, you know, rather than just constantly reshuffling our population and forcing people to go through what are these very disruptive moves that have all these economic costs, I would say we can actually make our superstar city grow again. And uh, I think, you know, there's compelling evidence that even if you don't care, even if you don't want to move to these places, even if you're comfortably, affordably housed, there's compelling evidence that the inability of a young tech worker to move to a San Jose or a young uh, healthcare researcher to move to Boston makes us collectively poor and less innovative. You know, I think most people here in your audience knows cities are these incredible engines of creativity and productivity. And to the extent that we don't allow people to go and participate in those massive labor markets, we're all worse off. Continuing to dig into the zoning impacts on housing, I was struck by the home voter hypothesis and its potential impact on the future of zoning. For as long as I can remember, the zeitgeist has been that purchasing a home is an investment in the future that should be protected. But this approach to consumerism in housing wasn't always as strong as it is now, evidently. And I think that there is even now kind of a shift away from thinking about housing as an investment, but it is still the primary thought pattern in America. How did this mentality take root in America and what are its possible impacts on zoning in the future? Yeah, right. Well, as you say, for most Americans, their their largest asset is their home. That's where they've parked all of their life savings. And we've built our entire federal housing finance system and our, to a certain extent, our tax system around encouraging this type of behavior of put as much as you can in your home. Think of your home as your nest egg, your investment. Implicit deal there is we're going to make sure that the value of this thing keeps going up and up and up. And you'll sell it and you'll retire and you'll live happily ever after. Of course, the trouble is that this puts many people's retirement intention with a very basic social goal, which is affordable and accessible housing. So once you've created a situation where many people think of their home as an investment, I think they'll very rationally do two things. One, they'll be extremely conservative about anything and everything that gets built near them. This is why you go to any planning commission meeting and you will hear completely baseless concerns about how this is going to affect property values, right? oh, you're building an apartment building within a quarter mile of my home. This is going to affect my property value. Well, probably not going to lower the value of uh, your single family home, but sure. Or, you know, uh, we can't allow this corner grocery to pop up because it's going to lower my... People always speak in terms of property values and, of course, never with any evidence. That's one reaction. And I think that's why we get these like heavily, heavily regimented and and segregated on the basis of land use communities. The second very natural reaction that you're going to have to that is, well, Great. Like housing scarcity is actually to my benefit because if housing is scarce, then the value of my asset is going to keep going up. And ideally, you want like some shared buy in for the opposite. Ideally, you want some shared collective buy in to make sure, hey, let's build enough housing to where every sort of young family can get on the ladder of homeownership or that, you know, every downsizing senior can can find an affordable condo or townhouse within her community or right. Ideally, you want uh, some sort of collective buy in here. In places where you have property taxes, right, there's still at least some incentive, right? Like if your property tax bill is going up and up and up uh, because your home values are going up, you're feeling the heat and you you at least have some incentive to 
support building additional housing. But in places like California, for example, where we've adopted policies like Prop 13, which cap the extent to which your property tax bill can go up, we've even taken away that sort of positive incentive. And so this is, I think, why the politics of zoning reform are so challenging, because we've created a system where everybody has buy-in for incredibly conservative regimented land use patterns and housing scarcity. And that's what we got. And, you know, the only way you can solve that broader problem, I think, is by either fundamentally rethinking how we do land use planning or fundamentally overhauling the broader housing system. And I think it's probably more likely that we can do the former. Yeah, both big asks, but not <laughs> not entirely out of the realm of possibility. So switching gears from housing to transportation, as a transportation planner myself, I was struggling a little bit with how to envision a future without zoning that still supports the most efficient possible transportation outcomes. What you say about zoning not supporting transit is kind of spot on here in Lincoln. We know we can't serve that our growing edge neighborhoods because there isn't enough density. So a lot of our transit system is focused in the core, but we're never going to get there because that's what our zoning says it should be. But in a post-zoning world, how do we ensure that we're building transit systems, bike infrastructure, and a roadway network in the right way if we allow the market to pick where those high-density developments are going and that could be scattered around because that's the best possible land that they could assemble? And then especially looking at this from a mid-sized city like Lincoln that's really built around cars. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the status quo is that in most U.S. cities, we've spent millions, if not billions of dollars in transit. And then we have a zoning code that says, by the way, we're not actually going to allow you to build any new office or housing near this, near these transit stations. And then we wonder why these systems, you know, underperform in terms of ridership. We know that land prices, you know, we, we know land prices, we know rents, we know office space. There's a premium associated with being near transit. And that's the market literally communicating like, hey, a lot of people actually want to have a home or work in an office space that they can get to maybe by transit or maybe by by bicycle or walking. So what we do is we build out this infrastructure today and then we actively stop folks from making the most of it. You know, I think in a post-zoning world, right, like in planning out zoning, uh, we actually have to be a little bit more humble and we have to little, we have to actually look at what's happening in terms of broader trends. Where are we seeing investment happening? Where are the areas where we expect growth to happen rather than the current paradigm of where are we going to try to force growth to happen regardless of whether market conditions or demographic or economic conditions line up? You know, I think it's it's a complete paradigm shift of switching from thinking of cities as this thing that we engineer. And, you know, we are the master planners and we think through how do we turn the knobs and dials to make this system work to thinking of cities as a garden where certain things are going to happen and we can cultivate certain patterns and cultivate certain trends. But essentially, an urban form is going to emerge. You know, I do think infrastructure, I talk about this in the last chapter of the book, infrastructure is so central to affecting urban form. And it's funny because, you know, even in our current zone paradigm, we kind of just willingly, many, many U.S. cities don't have anything like a detailed streets plan. Maybe they'll have like a corridor plan. But the actual streets that are getting built in new subdivisions are just whatever the developer wants to build. And so you get these winding messes of cul-de-sacs and winding roads that have no coordination. But then if you, the minor details of the single family homes that you build in that neighborhood, we're going to rigidly regulate that. You better have two car garages. We want to have a roof pitch of XYZ. You're going to be uh, 2.5 stories, 25 foot front setback. Yeah, but sure, whatever, whatever you do with the roads, like as long as they're wide enough, we don't care. I would argue that's the complete, like we should be actually, planners should be playing a very proactive role in saying, we're going to sit down and think through, there's going to be a street grid of intersections at this interval. Uh, every so many streets, we're going to plan out multimodal uh, infrastructure. Every so many blocks, we're going to make sure that we're purchasing an option for public lands and parks and facilities for future schools. That's the type of nuts and bolts planning that I think actually creates a huge amount of value. 
And you you can really play a powerful role in shaping urban form just by those tools, as opposed to the way we do it today, where we say, well, we don't care. We'll, we'll, we'll do public lands and we'll do transit lines and we'll do streets in a very sort of ad hoc way. But we're going to rigidly control where the density goes. You know, I think we're, we're leaving the most powerful tools that we have as planners on the table. In the book, you also discuss the possibility of private land covenants taking the place of zoning for groups of people who still want to impose that exclusivity on their neighborhoods. As a lawyer, I have to admit that this actually concerned me when I was reading the book. You know, my profession would probably benefit a lot, but the first concern that popped into my brain was that establishing covenants actually requires a level of sophistication on behalf of a property owner that I'm not sure trickles all the way through society. And then the need to know that such a process actually exists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of people and they don't have any idea that they have a land covenant until bam, they're in a neighborhood and they have an HOA. And then furthering down that line, it's nearly impossible to establish covenants in existing developments, and it's expensive to do so in conjunction with new development. So my ask here is, what would you say to a skeptic like me to defend the use of private land covenants in a post-zoning world? It's a great series of questions, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the concerns you're raising. Uh, you know, I, I think a few things. One, the issue that I'm trying to think through with covenants in the book is there's a certain segment of the population that has a preference for something like R1 zoning, right? Like there are a lot of people out there who are like, I want to live in this neighborhood that's all single family homes and no commercial uses. And the question is like, how do we like, and, and those were the sorts of preferences that got us modern zoning, right? Like people wanted these neighborhoods that looked a certain way. And so they went out and said, I'm going to make the government provide that. And you might say impose that on everybody. The question is, how do we allow those interests to satiate their demand for a neighborhood that looks a certain way without forcing cities to adopt this broader zoning system that puts cities in a straitjacket? When I look at the example of the one major U.S. city that doesn't have zoning, which is Houston, that seems to be the compromise that they've arrived at of if you voluntarily opt into these things, we will defer to them, we will respect them, but we're not going to give you power over what happens outside of your deed-restricted communities. Now, all of that said... Everyone who's ever been in an HOA knows that there are deep issues with HOA governance. In many cases, these things are very hard to change. They're very hard to get rid of. I agree as, you know, any sort of broader shift to a more decentralized approach to land use regulation would need to seriously reckon with the governance issues for HOAs. And we would also have to come up with frameworks where we make it somewhat easier in established communities where there's an extremely strong preference for these types of rules for folks to opt into it. So again, I, I return to Houston case where I think they've they've really been on the forefront of the clever compromises that are, are necessary to make a broader non-zoning system work. And so, for example, when they reduced minimum lot sizes in 1998 from 5,000 square feet to 1,400 square feet citywide, what they did was they created a framework where they said, okay, if you can get, I believe, 55% of property owners on your block to agree to revert to a minimum lot size that reflects existing conditions, we'll let you do that. They create a framework and a pathway for folks to essentially opt out of non-zoning. You know, it's unfortunate to the extent to which people will use levers like that to re-institute rules that exclude maybe more affordable housing typologies. But if that's the compromise that avoids you having a broader system of citywide use segregation and very strict density controls, to my mind, as I argue in the book, I think that's a compromise worth making. Getting us down a non-zoning path and realizing that it was a very long, slow process that got us to this point with zoning, and it's politically challenging to just abolish it, as you recommend in the book, what's the middle ground or is there a middle ground? How do cities start to remove the stranglehold zoning has in our cities? 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I, at my capacity at California EMB, I mean, that's really our focus really is on reforming the system. Uh, you know, for reasons I argue in the book, I think there's a, a case to be made for a fundamental reset on how we do lightning planning. But in the near future, I think it makes a lot of sense for activists to focus their energy on reforming zoning. This can happen at the local and, and state level for the most part. I think, look, taking on some of these zoning rules that are most out of sync with our planning values, rules like minimum parking requirements, which essentially write auto dependence into law and say, if you want to build an apartment building or a storefront, you have to have either a giant parking lot or a giant parking garage. You know, I would say that's that's an area where we actually can leave it up to the market with some confidence or leave it up and then have some certain, you know, impact fee associated with parking above some threshold, a complete paradigm shift in how we, we think about parking, where we mandate it today. Or rules like single family zoning, where we 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 literally reserve something like 75 to 90 percent of our residential areas for detached single family homes. When we know that in 2023, a starter home is going to look like a townhouse or a unit in a duplex or a condo in a small multifamily building. We're seeing a lot of exciting progress on that. You know, more and more cities are eliminating parking requirements altogether. It started in 2017 with cities like Buffalo and Hartford. We're seeing cities remove single family zoning policies, uh, Minneapolis you know, cross that threshold with their general plan update uh, recently. A whole bunch of other thicket of rules that just make it hard to build affordable infill housing, the type of housing that our communities need. We're seeing a lot of exciting stuff happen there. I'm optimistic too of not just, you know, because of course housing is very near and dear to my heart here in California, but there are other areas of zoning, right? Of this notion that we're not going to have any commercial in our residential neighborhoods, right? I think we can sort of start to a conversation about uses like corner groceries or corner doctor's offices or corner barbershops, these types of commercial uses that were, if you go to your your local city's pre-zoning inter-suburban neighborhoods, these commercial uses are quite common and probably beloved, right? And allowing for that type of inoffensive, gentle use mixture to, to return to our communities. I've mentioned a lot of exciting stuff happening at the local level, but as I said earlier in the talk, in many cases, the local politics don't line up for zoning reform. You might have entrenched NIMBYs who block anything and everything that gets proposed. In many contexts, you have to have uh, action happen at the state level. So zoning is a state's delegated power to local governments, and it's appropriate for the state to put up guardrails when local governments abuse those powers. They already do this in terms of a zoning process. But saying, for example, as we have here in California, okay, look, you can have objective rules and design standards controlling them, but you don't get to completely ban accessory dwelling units. Every city in California since 2016 has had to come up with a framework where they allow ADUs and they permit them pursuant to workable standards. I think that's been a very, very, very positive uh, trend. And we're seeing more and more states take that up. So ADUs alone, of course, here on the West Coast, California, Oregon, and soon Washington and Montana have all legalized accessory dwelling units statewide. So don't sleep on action at the state level. That's a, that's one way to solve these problems in many jurisdictions all at once. have to admit, the amount of times I thought, what do people have against corner grocery stores <laughs> while reading your book? It was it, it was not just one or two. It was, it was quite mm-hmm. a few times. After reading your book, if a city official or a group of people decide that they actually want to move towards abolishing zoning, what are the steps that cities should take to start making that a reality? Yeah, so I would say, I mean, you asked about abolition, but I would say just to focus on reform here for a minute, whenever I talk to a city or a county or a state some remember they, that they always ask, what, what, what do we do first? In a local context, I say, look at what you're getting variances for. What are you, like, what are you getting variances for? What are you getting? Where are you getting rezoning requests? Where are you, where are you getting requests for special permits? That, that's literally like 
the market communicating to you like, hey, these are the areas where there's a binding constraint. If you're in a jurisdiction, there's so many jurisdictions like this. If you're in a jurisdiction where you're processing like a variance to get parking relief every single week at every single planning meeting, well, hey, that's like your market signal that maybe you should just, you know, allow the parking. Maybe you should just get rid of the parking requirements that are putting you in the situation where this is absorbing so much planning capacity. Or if you're constantly having to manage special use permits for home-based businesses that totally inoffensive to everyone, change the underlying rules, right? Like, so that's one thing. I would say too, just what we need right now within land use planning is a broader rethink of what we want planning to do. So the book is is heavily, heavily critical of zoning, but I see it as criticizing zoning with an eye toward reviving land use planning. And there are real issues with land use planning that have to be considered, dealing with incompatible neighbors, uh, dealing with the impacts that certain uses have. You know, there was, I was just reading some survey data from Metropolitan Sacramento. And they asked folks, what would make you concerned about new development coming into your neighborhood? And the number one thing by a mile is parking and traffic. It's like there's parking and traffic and then there's like everything else that like we all spend so much time thinking about. And it's like, no, people just really are concerned about parking and traffic. That's good, right? Like, because that's a thing we can manage and that's a thing we can deal with. And that's a thing that we can have as planners that we can have smart solutions for. So I would say, you know, look at where you have binding constraints. Think through the legitimate concerns that that maybe the folks who are on the sidelines might have with growth and talk to your planners, build your local coalitions, talk to your local planners, talk to your local mission driven developers, talk to your local groups who are thinking about maybe housing affordability or sustainability or equity and, and come up with a suite of policies that everybody can get on board with call out to our listeners if they've ever had zoning reform that no one opposed we'd like to hear about it i i will say you know i i with surprising frequency i will hear from a planner who takes up what a text amendment to you know do something like increase far or ease up on setbacks or lot coverage and depending on how wonky the reform is yeah a lot of times there, there might not be that much opposition because folks are just like okay sure like we don't even really know you're going to increase the lot coverage from like 35% to 60%. Okay, sure, whatever. That's not like the like the pure planning theory, like go out and do lots of public process and like get consensus. But like, there are a whole bunch of rules where like, you can just tinker with them on the margins. And most people don't really know or care what these rules are. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, to your earlier comment about looking at what you've been proving and what the waivers or variances have been, that's how we started a couple of our most recent text amendments. I went out and looked and said, we've done height waivers for like 12 of these PUDs in the last year. Why don't we just increase the height limit? And then you actually go out to these things have been built and, and show that, yeah, that extra 15 feet didn't really create any harm or have any negative impacts. So it's, it's a good way to start. At least you have the data. That's a great way to do it. I mean, just to riff on that point for a little bit here, you know, like that's, I think that's the exact right way to approach zoning reform is to say like, go out and find the example of what you're proposing that already exists. You know, so, so often, like if you, t- if you just roll into one of these meetings and start talking about FAR or height limits in the abstract, people are going to imagine Kowloon Walled City or or Hong Kong or whatever the unfashionable city that everybody beats up on now is, right? But if you, if you go in and say, hey, look, like, that nice pre-zoning inner suburb that we have that has a corner grocery and has a mixture of single family homes and townhouses and duplexes. And yeah, actually the homes maybe sit within, you know, God forbid, five feet of the street. And everyone's like, oh yeah, we know that neighborhood and we love that. And you can make the case like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had more communities like this or if we made it possible for our existing communities to become more like this? If it already exists, I think it's significantly less scary to people. And that's one way to approach zoning reform. 
So do you think the conversation about ending zoning is different between mid-sized cities like Lincoln and a mega region that like LA, where there's just communities kind of sprawling into the neighboring communities versus Lincoln's kind of an island on its own? There were some examples from the book that didn't necessarily relate strongly to the work here in the Midwest because we aren't necessarily pushing sprawl with a lot of our policies because we just don't have the demand for that much new housing. But we we do have low density approaches to building that dictate very tediously every little thing that you can do in your zoning code. And there's one land use topic right now that it just keeps getting worse with every text amendment and it's just become impossible to really understand. So I don't know if, if you have thoughts on how it differs based on community size and context. Interesting question. You know, I do tend to think that the the biggest value of moving past this zoning paradigm is going to be in existing cities. I think that's true, not you know, with any variation across the metropolitan scale. So if you have maybe a post-war suburb that's in Lincoln or that's in Los Angeles or that's in Lexington, that's trying to make this tr- transition to being a more affordable, equitable, diverse, sustainable community, I think the principles broadly apply in the same way. I think where there's important variation and where these things touch down differently is, is your region growing or shrinking? Is your region undergoing a massive economic transition? Has your region, like for example, in Los Angeles, we've basically spent the last 70 years making it very, very, very hard to build housing such that we have a huge amount of demand that if we were to remove a lot of these rules, there'd be a really, really, really big building boom. And I think it's that there are important considerations to be made of unwinding this this crisis that we've built up over the course of decades. Whereas in places that have been maybe building more steadily, I actually do think you can potentially be a little bit more radical and move more quickly on some of these things. In places where you're maybe not dealing with robust growth at all, I think there's this notion of like, well, like, why do we need to do zoning reform in maybe a Rust Belt city? Not not true of Lincoln, but true of many, many Midwestern cities nearby of, well, we, our population is shrinking and, you know, we don't have a huge amount of housing demand. Why should we be considering these rules at all? And I say, well, a lot of your existing stock is still non-conforming. A lot of your existing storefronts are actually illegal to occupy without a variance or a special use permit. The multifamily infill that people do want to build because maybe your population is not growing, but family sizes are shrinking or you have young professionals or retirees who have different housing preferences who need different types of housing, that housing is still going to be built. And you can make that harder or easier for those folks. I think zoning reform and abolition touches down differently in different places, but I think the principles are, are broadly the same. You know, I think if we want to build affordable, equitable, sustainable communities in the long term, I think we have to scrap this notion of of really rigid use segregation and having really, really strict controls on density. And should we be able to achieve what seems impossible and no longer have a zoning ordinance in a community? What do you think the planning profession will really look like? The way it was put to me is I, I think that planners add the most value when we recognize we're stewards of the public realm. We're the folks who coordinate. We're the folks who, to riff on my garden metaphor a little bit, we we, we lay the bed here so a whole bunch of different plans can emerge, right? We create, We you know, I think where planning added so much value is doing things like thinking through, hey, let's just plan out a street grid. Let's plan out where the parks are going to go. Let's plan out where schools are going to go. Let's keep track of economic and demographic changes and how that's going to affect public service quality and infrastructure needs. Kind of unsexy. It's not like, you know, the big picture, like fad of the week sort of thing that I think planners like to do, but that very nuts and bolts, like sit down and like have a plan for the like infrastructure and public service needs of a, of a growing community or a changing community. That's where we add just so, so, so much value. Another example here of, I think, where sort of our notion of what our role is has gone wrong is 
I'm always going to be riffing on parking. So I, many of your listeners probably know I'm, I'm a Donald Shoup acolyte, and I hope many of them are as well. But think about how we've dealt with the problem of parking. The contemporary way we solve the problem of parking is we say for everything that gets built, we're going to require tons of off-street parking to be built. And of course, for reasons I won't go here, that has huge costs. Another way we could have dealt with parking would be to say, well, we're going to manage on-street parking. We're going to set up parking benefits districts. We're going to have prices that vary over the course of the day. We might reserve some permits for for existing residents or for low-income residents. And then we're going to put that money back into improvements in the public realm. Which of these strategies doesn't make sense for a planner to pursue? I think we know that the parking requirement, just mandating off-street parking strategy hasn't worked. But this is where we need proactive entrepreneurial planners to say, well, hey, we can actually build better and more sustainable planning institutions that address people, not only address people's concerns with a quality of life issue, but address it in a way that actually improves everyone's life on a whole bunch of different other margins. You have on-street parking demand management and you charge a nominal fee that encourages people to not consume excessive amounts of parking. But then with the revenue, you plant more street trees or you repave the sidewalks or you you know, fund public art projects. To my mind, that's that sort of paradigm shift that's necessary is planners recognizing that, A, we're stewards of the public realm, and our mission is to maximize the extent to which people can plan out their own lives without harming others. I think if we refocus on those basic things that that planners can do really well, I, I think there's real opportunity for a little bit of a renaissance. You know, I, I touch back on in the book regularly is I really do feel that there's this malaise within planning. So many planners work with institutions or norms or processes that they know don't make much sense, or they're dealing, they're interacting with ordinances that don't reflect current planning values. I mean, it's so every jurisdiction in America, you can crack open the comprehensive plan or the general plan, and there'll be beautiful language about diverse communities and multimodal opportunities and cultivating small businesses. And then you look over at the zoning code and you're like, okay, uh, apartments are banned in like 90% of the city. You need a special permit to start basically any business. And by the way, you have to have like acres and acres of parking for everything you build. That's tough when you're the planner working in that environment. Again, I want to I want to stress this. There's a superficial reading of the book that it's me criticizing a specific planning institution. But the broader project here is that I, I criticize this institution apart because I think land use planning is so important and planners have so much value to add if we can only move past uh, the broken status quo. Really funny that you mentioned that because our last episode on the comp plan, we talked specifically about that, about how all of our comp plans have these great broad goals and our zoning codes never align with them. And then they're always at odds. And step one of implementation on a comp plan is to get your zoning code to align. So it'd be much easier if we just didn't have the zoning code. When I was practicing law more than working in the planning industry, I always felt like our comprehensive plans are like these like lovely, lofty ideals that our city wants to say they want to get to, but our zoning code is really the morality of the city and what the city truly thinks about their land use and their the way they want to be. It's a very interesting juxtaposition, I think. Yeah, this is this is an area where like reform can get you some of the goods, you know? So having really, really strict consistency requirements, I think is is generally a good idea. I mean, that's partly what went right in Minneapolis was they adopted their new general plan or comp plan and then the zoning immediately had to change, right? That probably made it much easier to do some of the more, I think, progressive things that they were doing in that document. Uh, whereas in so many other jurisdictions where you adopt a comp plan and then, yeah, we might we might revise our zoning, might not. We don't really have to. Very unhealthy dynamic. And I think it lowers public trust in the process too. Let's say you really got involved in your local comprehensive planning process and you went to the meetings and you were a big part of this document and then it passes and then nothing meaningfully changes in zoning or in how infrastructure is being financed or what's being prioritized. 
why would you do that again? Why would you trust your local planning institutions? Why would you trust your elected officials? I think you're going to very rationally get cynical and check out. So yeah, huge problem for for the profession. Very good point. To wrap up, is there anything that we didn't cover or any important messages that you want to leave this episode with? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I mean, I, the questions have been really great. Uh, I really appreciate it. I would just say we are in a window now. The window is open for, I think, fairly radical reform on this policy. You know, I mean, I, I joked about California. You know, one of the benefits of California being in a permanent housing crisis is that we started actually finally reckoning with solutions. This is to a certain extent spreading all across the U.S. as housing affordability has just become an entrenched and permanent issue. Not only that, but as folks start to recognize with historical racial inequities that persist to this day in issues like conservation and climate change. Folks are realizing like, hey, on so many margins, on so many things that we value, our zoning codes and our zoning rules are in conflict with that. And there's a huge amount of reform energy. And there's a real opportunity here for committed folks, whether you're a planner or a developer or just an interested activist or an elected official, to make change on a lot of these rules. Build those coalitions, start talking to folks, take a look at the rules that don't reflect your current planning values. And and start proposing changes. You know, I think folks, I think, often operate on the assumption that, you know, oh, if I propose X, Y, Z, I'm going to get crucified. The planner who's incredibly nervous about proposing a text amendment or the elected official who's nervous about uh, requesting changes, you might actually be surprised. I think there's actually a big appetite for change in this space. Yeah, the person who shows up at the 10 a.m. Tuesday public hearing is probably still going to yell at you. But your average constituent is maybe dealing with these things in a real way and they want to see leadership. Uh, on these issues. So I would just encourage folks, you know, whatever level of the change making process you are, get involved and push. We are in this window where we can really change lightning planning in a big way. Well, I think that's a great way to end the episode. And want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with author Nolan Gray on his book, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. You can get your own copy through the publisher at islandpress.org and check out the other great titles that we've covered on this show while you're there. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and share the show. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on Booked on Planning.